Good morning, everyone. I'm assuming it's morning when you hear this, but it's afternoon and Thursday afternoon, to be precise, when I record it. The COVID count is going up significantly and dangerously, and at least for myself and my wife and my family, it seems too dangerous to present this live and in person. So we made a decision which may need to be made for more of us than just me, but a decision for myself at least to record this week's sermon and play it to you on Sunday morning the 15th. I trust that God will speak through it and use it regardless and that it can be spiritually like we're together. I want to begin, as I always do, with a word to the boys and girls and say to you that given the fact that I'm doing this on Thursday afternoon, I didn't have the object with me today. And had I had it, it would have been a suitcase, preferably on rollers so I could pull it out here and show it to you and say, have you ever had to go away? Have you ever had to go to camp, maybe for a week? or go visit grandpa and grandma for a week, or go on a trip with a friend of yours and your friend's family for maybe a week, maybe even two, and you had to decide, what will I bring along? What is important to me? What is necessary for me to have? Well, if you can picture that suitcase and think about that situation and ask yourself that question, what would I bring along if I had to go away? and especially if I had to go away quickly, all of a sudden, what would I put in it? And while you think about all that, I want you to know that I'm about to read a passage from Scripture where Peter hears Jesus, and he and his friends at the end of that conversation leave everything and follow Jesus. That meant they left their jobs, they left their homes, they left their boats, they left their family, they left their fishing equipment, they left everything. I'm not suggesting that we have to leave everything, but what they were saying is nothing and no one is more important than Jesus. Jesus is the most important of all. That's what it said that they decided in a moment to leave everything and follow him. Think about that now as I read that story and then talk about it a little. The story is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. A story we've probably all heard more than once. It's titled in the NIV, Jesus calls his first disciples. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Your Christian way to heaven is too easy for me. I cannot accept it. If ever I should find admittance to heaven in that manner, I would feel like a pauper there, like a beggar who has been let in out of pity. I may be proud, but I want to deserve, I want to earn my place in heaven. And so I'm going to work for it. An American missionary by the name of David Morse worked for years in India and spent a good deal of time in conversation with an old Indian pearl diver by the name of Rambau. And he talked often about accepting Jesus Christ as his savior and the pearl diver's answer was always the same. It's too easy to just accept it. I have to do more than that. One night, the diver invited Morse over to his house. And he said to Morse, in a week's time, I start working for my place in heaven. I'm leaving for Delhi, and I'm going there on my knees. Now, what you didn't know when I read that was Delhi was 900 miles away. And Rambau was prepared to crawl there on his knees 900 miles. David Morse said, how can I let you do that when Jesus suffered and died to purchase heaven for you? But the diver was immovable. He said, I have to earn my heaven. And then the diver said, now I must tell you, for soon I will leave, and who knows whether I shall ever return. My son was a diver, too. He was the best pearl diver on the coasts of India. He had the swiftest dive, the keenest eye, the strongest arm, the longest breath of any man who ever sought for pearls. What joy he brought to me. Most pearls, as you know, have some defect or blemish only the expert can discern. But my boy, 
always dreamed of finding the perfect pearl, one beyond all that was ever found. One day he found it, but even when he saw it, he had been underwater too long. The pearl cost him his life, for he died soon after that. And that pearl, Rambau, the pearl diver, said to David Morse, I want to give you as a gift of love. And Moore suddenly saw the opportunity he'd been looking for. I'll buy it, he said. I'll give you $10,000 for it. And the diver looked at him with a puzzled look on his face. And Moore said, well, I'll give you $15,000 for it. Or if it takes more, I'll work for it. And Rambau said to him, the pearl is beyond price. No man in all the world has money enough to pay what this pearl is worth to me. On the market, a million dollars could not buy it. I will not sell it to you. You may only have it as a gift. No, said Morse. I cannot accept that. As much as I want your pearl, I cannot accept it that way. Perhaps I'm proud, but that's too easy. I must pay for it or work for it. Don't you see? Asked the pearl diver. My only son gave his life to get this pearl. And I wouldn't sell it for any money. Its worth is in the lifeblood of my son. I cannot sell this, but I can give it to you. Just accept it as a token of the love I bear for you. Don't you see, said Morse. My words are just what you have been saying to God all along. God is offering you salvation as a free gift. It is so great and priceless that no man on earth can buy it. Millions of dollars are too little. No man on earth could earn it. His life would be millions of years too short. No man is good enough to deserve it. It cost God the lifeblood of his only son to make the entrance for you into heaven. In a million years, in a hundred pilgrimages, you could not earn that entrance. All you can do is to accept it as a token of God's love for you, a sinner. And all the old man could say in response was all that God ever wanted to hear from him. He said, then I will accept the gift. A conversation on the shores of the Sea of Galilee one morning was at least analogous to the conversation David Morse often had with that old pearl diver. Put out a little, Simon. That's how it all started. It's interesting. This is our introduction to Simon in Luke's gospel. We haven't heard about him yet. I wonder how long he had sat there on the beach that day or on some other hilltop or some other Galilean venue hearing Jesus' rendition of that pearl story without personally accepting it himself. Having fished all night, it proved to be a bad night, not a single catch at all. Not one, I guess even 
professional fishermen have bad days or bad nights. And Simon and his brother and their two friends had pulled the boat up on the shore and taken the net out and spread it out on the sand and cleaned it off and mended it where it needed it and dried it and folded it up and put it back in the boat, hoping that tonight's fishing would be better at least than last night's. And now I'm imagining Simon sitting on the beach, maybe leaning back against the bow of his boat, maybe with his hands behind his head, chewing a bite of breakfast and maybe saying, boy, my eyelids are heavy in this warm Galilean morning sunshine. When he heard a voice, put out a little, Simon. Maybe the first words he he remembers hearing that day. His boat is right on the edge, and Jesus is on the edge now, kind of pushed down the hillside and across the beach by the press of the crowd, and Peter, whether he knew it or not, he was on the edge too. Put out a little, Simon. I stood once, personally, on those shores. I swam in those waters. I felt the waves lapping against my feet and ankles as I stood on the beach. I saw boats like the one Peter and Andrew had. I, I took a ride in one out into the middle of the lake at sunset one night. I smelled the sea breeze. I saw the beautiful hills around that lake. I can picture it like it just happened yesterday. And I hope you can too, but you needn't have been there to have this experience. Listen, Jesus boards the boat and then asks the skipper to put out a little. Simon has only been mentioned before in Luke's gospel in conjunction with the healing of his mother-in-law, out of whom Jesus told a fever to leave. And Peter must have seen the press of people that came to that house after this reported miracle and wanted Jesus to do something wonderful for them, too. Put out a little, Simon. <coughs> it, it was Jesus' way of saying, will you help me in my work a little? Will, will you join me in my ministry? And will you read between the lines here and see how Jesus works? These fishermen he's talking to are would-be disciples, sometimes disciples, almost disciples, gospel eavesdroppers, if you wish. They had come, they had seen, they had heard, and maybe more than once, but they had not made any decision yet to accept Jesus. And the preacher says, put out a little, Simon. I suspect, knowing Peter, he was a little put out before he put out a little. But he had come at least that far. He had come and he had listened. He had come, figuratively speaking, to the pew. He had come where you are. The sermon finished, 
And Peter may even have been nodding again. He'd been up all night. At least his eyes were, I think, maybe half shut. And the crowds began to disperse, and the boat was bobbing up and down a little in the ripples at the shore. I can see it. I can feel it. I can, I can almost smell it. But you needn't have been there to have this experience. Perhaps Simon feels a tap on his shoulder and wakes up with a start. At any rate, he did hear a voice saying, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Well, that opened his eyes and made him alert. That meant starting all over again with this fishing enterprise that had yielded nothing the night before. That meant going back out bone-tired, trying it once more. That meant spending hours doing something that had proved to be a total waste of time. And most humbling of all, it meant a professional fisherman listening to a carpenter give him advice about how to catch fish. It meant trust. It meant faith. It meant obedience. It meant discipleship. It meant following. It meant Peter put out a lot. And to Peter, it probably made no sense. It made about as much sense as trying to earn salvation by crawling on your knees for 900 miles to pay for it. When he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. You see what's happening here? It could be happening right here, right now. You need to have been there to have the experience. You can have it here. It's the follow-up to every real sermon. The congregation gets up to leave, and the preacher of every true sermon looks just Simon in the eye. Or just you. Or just me. You put out a little to come and listen. Now will you put out a lot and go out and live what you heard? It's the application to every true sermon. You needn't have been there to have the experience. You can have it right here. Will you trust? Will you believe? Will you follow? Will you obey? Will you be my disciple? Will you realize that no true sermon is finished until it's done, until it's done by those who listened? Peter, Joel, whatever your name may be, will you put out into the deep water? Will you surrender to my judgment? Will you follow my lead? Will you do what I say? Will you be my disciple? Will you give up? Will you obey? Will you say what Simon said? Master. Good first word. Good way to begin the conversation. Master. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Tell him what's on your mind. Tell him what's in your heart. Open up to him. 
Don't hold back. Tell him about your hesitation, but don't let your hesitation sit there separating you from him. It's the only way to get through to the even more important words. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. This is not primarily a fish story, but it's pretty good just as a fish story, isn't it? After a fruitless night of fishing, a catch so big it threatened to sink two boats, what a prospect for a man who made a living fishing, discovering a fish finder like that. But what stands out to Peter? The fish? No. The finder? No. The fault. His own fault. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Job had said it, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah had said it, woe to me. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Paul had said it. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. John had said it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What stood out to them all, and Peter is no exception, it's not the magnitude of the miracle, not the magnitude of God, not the magnitude of the collected sins of all humanity but the magnitude of his own sin. As our Kent Hughes put it, this response to Jesus is a great grace because moral agony and inner writhing over one's sin is a necessary prelude to the grace of forgiveness. But did you notice this is not just a prelude to forgiveness, it's a prelude also to service. Daryl Bach wrote, the fishing expedition has brought in its first catch, and the first fish is named Simon. Simon now knew who he was. Simon now had a better sense of who Jesus was. Simon now knew himself to be a sinner in need of God's grace. Wanting and needing a pearl he'd never be able to afford but that was being offered to him free, paid for by the lifeblood of the man before whom he knelt. And that's when Jesus said it to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch people. Did you notice what kind of people God is looking for? Not people who say, oh, sure, I can help God out, but people who know they can't. 
Not people who say, I think I can scrape enough money to pay for that pearl, but those who know they'll never be able to afford it at all. Not those who say, I've got a lure that I think will attract the fish, but those who know they don't have any ability to catch fish at all. Not those who say, I'll do God a favor and go fishing, but those who only do it because of God's favor to them. From now on, Daryl Bach said, Simon will be casting his nets in a different sea, the sea of humanity's need for God. When Jesus said to Simon, from now on you'll catch people, he used a word there, catch, that is composed of two words in the original language, one that meant to hunt, and the other meaning alive. To hunt, to capture, to catch, to reel in, alive. And alive is the operative concept. Catching people for life, one commentator wrote. What a glorious description of the gospel ministry. Perhaps you remember the little book on the single text in the book of Chronicles, The Prayer of Jabez, written by Bruce Wilkerson, Wilkinson. And in that book, he makes the following statement, or really asks the following question. If the God of heaven loves you infinitely and wants you in his presence every moment, and if he knows that heaven is a much better place for you, then why on earth has he left you here? I suggest that God's answer to that question, no matter who asks it, no matter where, no matter when, is always the same. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. Put down your nets, Simon and go fishing for real. Now listen, so they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Beached it all, the boats, the livelihood, the fish, the family, the friends. For all we know that the catch that threatened to sink the fleet that day was left rotting on the beach because there were more important fish to catch than those. R. Kent Hughes tells a homey little story in his commentary that I want to share with you now because it illustrates Jesus' point precisely, I think. Because it shows you don't have to sell everything you have or walk away from it and quit your job. And because it says... Even a five-year-old can do it. He said, our family had the joyous experience some years ago when our daughter, Holly, began kindergarten. We were delighted when she became one of Mrs. Smith's kindergartners. Susie Smith was known as the best. Mrs. Smith brimmed with joyous enthusiasm about life and teaching and she loved her students. Mrs. Smith's smile and the warm cheer of her voice soothed the anxieties of students and parents alike. This winsomeness, along with her wholesome enthusiasm and creativity, made her a master teacher, 
and our shy little Holly loved Mrs. Smith. As Holly, nurturing soul that she was even then, walked home from school or tended her menagerie of pets, she often thought of Mrs. Smith and how nice it would be if she would come to church, and especially if she would come to know Jesus. So every Friday, Holly's guileless, big brown eyes engaged Mrs. Smith as she asked, Mrs. Smith, will you come to church this Sunday? And every Friday, Mrs. Smith answered, well, maybe. This was followed every Monday, as Susie Smith tells it, by our disappointed daughter saying, Mrs. Smith, you didn't come. At last, it simply became too much for Holly's poor teacher to face, so she promised to come to church. And Susie Smith did come to church, and she came again, and again, and again. For she had a deep, unrequited spiritual need that was only met when she came to faith in Christ. She was caught alive. Susie became a good friend and a vibrant Christian, bringing her vitality to the work of Christ. Today, Susie Smith, though confined to a wheelchair by MS, still flashes that same sparkle because over 20 years ago, she was caught alive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're no better than Simon, no different than Simon. Use us like you did, Simon. Break through whatever is standing between us and you. Remove whatever keeps us away from you. And give us the confidence of knowing that we can be successful not because we try so hard or work so much or are so good, but because you have chosen to use us. So help us to catch people with the same love with which you caught us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now will you please stand for God's blessing. Go in peace, and may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all places. The Lord be with you all. Amen.